What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the All Nighter Podcast, where we talk about architectural practice and education. My name is Jarrett Hardy, and I'm here with my co-host Aaron Mahalachek, and we are students hoping to inspire and guide future and current architecture students, design students, and young professionals. Um, so today, I'm super excited uh, to introduce our special guest of the day. Her name is Takabir Fatima, and she is from India. Um, and so a little background on her before we get into the discussion, um, but she received her Bachelor of Architecture from the CSI Institute of Technology in India, and she then received her Master of Architecture from the prestigious Architectural Association School of Architecture in London. And then on top of being an architect, Takbir runs the experimental design and architecture studios called Design Aware and Fractal Workshop, and then also co-directs the construction administration firm Build Aware. Um, Takbir is the recipient of the Telangana Young Architect Award by the Indian Institute of Architects in 2016, and was also recognized as Emerging Architect of the Year by NDTV Design and Architecture Awards. Um, Design Aware was also long listed for the Design Awards as Emerging Architecture Studio of the Year, um, actually last year during the pandemic. And then Takbir has been featured on Design for her project Hilltop School in Hyderabad, India, and has been a TEDx speaker. Uh, Takbir strives to give back to her community through projects that are socially important in conjunction with architecture and interdisciplinary design research. Um, so we are super happy to have her on the show. How are you? Hi, Jared. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, really, really happy to be uh, speaking to you and, and Aaron as well. Yes. And uh, how's your morning been so far? Because it's, it's currently, you're 12 and a half hours ahead of us. So for it's our nine. listeners, it's 8.30 at night here. And you said, not, you said nine, right? Yeah. Yeah, so nice little time difference there, but I appreciate you working that out with us and I think it's super special. Um, so, so I think where we're going to start, obviously, is kind of who you are, what your background is, because then that leads into all our other topics for this discussion. Um, but I guess we'll start off with your education and especially the AA, and then we'll go from there. So go ahead. Um, yeah, so I, I decided to go to the AA. It was kind of, um, when I was studying architecture, I, I wasn't really, um, you know, I never thought that I would be doing my master's immediately. Um, so I worked for a couple of years uh, after my undergrad and then I uh, went to the AA. Um, and I think for me, going to the, to the design research lab was really a life-changing experience. Uh, and it came at the right time when I, you know, right after uh, I had a few years of experience in practice and I'd worked under uh, a few different architects and seen um, their different styles of working and their approach to the design process. But I wasn't satisfied with the direction that, you know, this was leading me to uh, because it was mainstream commercial architecture. And what I wanted to do was kind of take a detour and try things which were not dictated so much by practicality or pragmatics like budget, um, time and uh, client or user needs, uh, and also feasibility. This was, this was the word that everything, you know, kind of boiled down to. So I wanted to do something that allowed me to uh, explore and open up my mind and not be um, sort of constrained. So design research really appealed to me in that it allows you to think and experiment um, in any direction within the bounds of practical constraints. So uh, you know, without the bounds of constraints. So the DRL is a very intensive program and it's very demanding. Uh, it's a 16 month program. So we worked in teams, we worked nonstop, um, 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., not even taking weekends off because it's such a short-term program. So we knew that we had to make the most of it while, while we were there. Um, and being an avant-garde uh, experimental program, there's no um, set coursework or direction of work that is you know, it's, it's all completely self-initiated. A lot of the times we felt like we were just, you know, chasing smoke and mirrors with, with no end in sight. It was really, it was frustrating and exciting, um, you know, at the same time. And uh, that's where I started to learn to become comfortable with not reaching a clear cut conclusion or a neat resolution at the end of the design process. Uh, it remained open-ended and that was okay. 
and failure was okay. That was also quite important. So this yeah. really changed my perspective on design and pedagogy and as well as practice. So I knew that once I started my own practice, it would be very different from what it would have been if I hadn't gone to London. Wow. What an experience though. You said 16 weeks? 16 months. 16 months. Okay. That's, that's crazy yeah. though. So just straight just through. And, yeah. Wow. Okay. So, and then, so that was in London. Um, but you, from what I see, you were born and raised in Saudi Arabia. Is that correct? I was, I was born in India and um, I was about four when I moved to Saudi Arabia because my okay. parents moved there. Uh, so I did my entire schooling, like high school in Saudi Arabia. And then I moved to India for uh, my bachelor's in architecture. So my parents are both Indian and they were living okay. as expatriates in Saudi Arabia because of my dad's job. So, uh, but Saudi Arabia doesn't have, you know, doesn't offer uh, open citizenship. Um, so we always knew that living there was for a limited time period. And my parents always wanted to move back to India eventually and not anywhere else. Um, and I have also visited India a bunch of times um, for, on, on summer vacations and, you know, met my family. My grandmother used to live here. And I really love the energy because um, Hyderabad is, has always been uh, a metropolitan city. So I love the, the energy and the, you know, the movement and the heritage uh, structures, the history of the place. So I felt like this was a really perfect place to study architecture. Um, and that's why I decided to go to college in Hyderabad. It was a really good experience because this city has so many layers of history um, and there've been many different dynasties who ruled over this region and each of it, uh, each of the dynasties had their own architectural style. So that was really interesting to study that entire palette of uh, different styles. Hmm. Gotcha. And so would you say that those visits that you um, did growing up back to India, is that part of what made you want to study architecture? I'm always super interested in wanting to know why people get into the field in the first place. Yeah, I, I didn't know that there was a field called architecture. I just knew <laughs> that, um, you know, I wanted to um, design things and I wanted to, I used to keep drawing, you know, uh, plans and I didn't know they were plans. <laughs> Uh, when I was a really, when I was a little kid, in fact, even though this is a podcast, I, since you asked me that question, this is a floor plan I drew when I was six. Wow, so, that's awesome. Was, yeah, so that, and you, at you just time, got that I didn't know, yeah, after, you know, after starting my firm, I decided, I found it and I decided, okay, I'll have it framed and show people yeah. that I was always into architecture. So I didn't know uh, about the discipline um, before, but only over the years when I uh, tried to understand what it was all about, because um, initially I was kind of interested in art and writing, uh, also cartooning sometimes. So um, because we had Google, it was new at the time. So I was able to find out that there was this field called architecture as well. Even though my father is a civil engineer, I never really, you know, I never really discussed um, engineering with him. I didn't know about spatial design, but it kind of, um, as soon as I found out that there was something called architecture, I got really interested in it. And that's when I started to observe places and spaces. And yes, definitely the, the heritage uh, architecture of Hyderabad really played a role in uh, getting me into architecture as well. Hmm. And then I, going along with that as well, were there any kind of negative connotations that you experienced? I mean, were, were people like, oh, you shouldn't go into architecture for this or that, you don't want to, the money's the here, or the experiences are not what you want it to be. What, what did that kind of look like for you? I think um, I wouldn't say that anybody discouraged me from um, being an architect. I think it was, I, um, I've, I've been kind of privileged in that I was really encouraged to pursue whatever uh, field of study I wanted to. Uh, mm. And um, we kind of lived in this isolated little silo kind of, you know, uh, in Saudi Arabia. So we didn't have uh, too many inputs. It was a very protected environment, I would say. So it kind of uh, allowed me to, to dream or do whatever I wanted to. I, I wasn't really 
um, kind of discouraged or told that I shouldn't I shouldn't get into architecture. Um, but yeah, once I got into architecture, that's when it got a little bit uh, difficult to imagine how things would turn out the way um, I wanted to because you are in architecture school. You are told that you're gonna um, you're gonna become a solo or sole practitioner, right? That's what everybody. Even though there are so many ways of practicing architecture, um, we're we're sold this dream that you're gonna be the solo, uh, you know, uh, master architect and run your firm. But that doesn't always happen. And there are many, I think practicing in India, it's really impossible to miss the issues of scarcity and overpopulation um, and the skewed distribution of resources. So there are many people who are in need and many, many more people who have far more than their future generations will ever need. And they're capable of giving and supporting others. So connecting one end of the spectrum to the other is something that I'm sure that a lot of people who are concerned with these, with these issues think about. And so in this kind of atmosphere, early on, I, I was you know, concerned with uh, issues of, of practicality and, and uh, budget and these kind of constraints. And at that time, I became really driven by finding ways to uplift and empower communities. So I felt that architecture doesn't always have to be about expensive, flashy glass skyscrapers. It can be, but it can mm -hmm. also be socially responsible, community-oriented, and something that is born from the earth. So I think there's this misconception, especially uh, around here, that architecture is cosmetic, it's just aesthetic, but it's far deeper than that. And it, it's a necessity in, you know, in the design of buildings and neighborhoods and cities. And we, as architects, I think it's really, um, it's our duty to make people aware uh, of the significance of architecture. Exactly. Are those, are, are those sort of talking points that you felt um, you learned or were discussed, or like they, that was discussed in your education? Because obviously you have a couple different schools you've gone to. Yeah, um, I think studying in India, it's really hard to miss the, uh, the, the aspect of scarcity of, you know, um, being uh, like preserving resources and, and energy and because everything is very, uh, it's not distributed as well as it should have. And there are many people who are in, uh, you know, in need. Um, so yes, budget and practicality, these kind of things are really overarching in my education in India. Whereas on the other hand of the spectrum is completely different uh, at the DRL where it was completely free of any sort of constraints. We didn't have to think about budget. We didn't have to think about whether something could be built or not um, and what purpose it would serve. It was really open-ended. So it's completely two different worlds that sort of collided uh, for me when I, when I went from one to the other. Hmm. Uh, I wanna ask a side question. Didn't Zaha D teach at AA? Yeah, she uh, she had stopped teaching when I joined, but okay. she used to come for guests, uh, lectures, and seminars. And also, uh, we had a tour to her studio. Um, wow! Right the beginning, so yeah. I'm jealous. There was a lot of, and Patrick was teaching uh, okay. at the DRL. He, he still is teaching at the DRL. So Very there was cool. a lot of Zaha influence and. Uh, in the way that we work. Okay, so you kind of, you, you have brought those, some of those ideas into your studio then, would you say? I think, uh, yeah, I think um, it's impossible to to miss. It's, it's yeah. kind of, it gets kind of ingrained in you, so yeah. Cool, okay, well then, with all that background information, we're gonna go into kind of the big questions um, of the show, but the first one I wanna discuss is obviously practicing in India as a woman and how you approach that um, as an entrepreneur um, and how you kind of set these things up, but we'll kind of go from there. So I, I said earlier that, you know, we're, we're always given this idea that you're going to be uh, a sole practitioner. You're going to be the only one practicing, but, uh, or, you know, you're going to lead, um, lead the team. It's, it's um, definitely true to some extent, uh, but also I think it's a team effort being being an architect it can't be a solo pursuit so I started designer as a concept when I was still a student at the AA and for many years it just remained an idea 
um, I, I was just playing around with a laser cutter uh, when I got the idea. And then th this was during one of the, I think it was a winter break when, when um, everything was closed and um, I was in the, uh, in the digital prototyping lab and just playing with the laser cutter. That's when I got the idea of DesignAware. And for many years, it just remained kind of an idea and then it became a virtual entity or virtual studio. Uh, before it became a full-time studio, and that was after I moved to Hyderabad after my master's. That's when it sort of became the um, became a proper kind of firm. Um, and and the state of Telangana, where Hyderabad is the capital, it's really uh, a tech-driven state. It's the high, uh, IT and startup hub of India. So at that time, um, I first started to work on uh, DesignAware, you know, and give it my 100%. I was reading a lot about how startups are run because there's so few books about how to run an architecture firm or you know, very few, uh, very little information even online at the time. So I was reading about other startups in other industries, most of them in the tech industries and how different companies situated themselves and the way different founders have approached their startups. Most of them, uh, of course, tech companies. And I found the process of setting up and running a company that really, really excited me. But there was no, you know, training for this in architecture school. It's, it's so ironic that they, um, they, they tell us that we're gonna be independent practitioners, but we're never taught how to run a studio, which I feel is, it's, a, it's a loss. So design is really not enough. We need to learn the business side of things. And I strongly believe that this has to be taught at least a little bit in college. And it's really unfortunate that it's not, and we have to augment this education uh, when we get knocked around from, you know, in real life and then learn from experience that um, with a few basic entrepreneurial skills, we could have been uh, far ahead uh, rather than have to start from zero. So um, in this search, I, I found something called the Startup Leadership Program. Uh, it's, it's a fellowship, a worldwide peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning program that selects founders who are working full-time on their startups. Not just people who have ideas about startups, but people who have put in a good amount of work towards making them a reality. So when I joined this program, that's when I was really able to up my game. And then this opened up a whole new understanding of how to run a company. And so, and then I discovered that the entrepreneurial bug is really addictive. It doesn't allow you to be satisfied with one, one company or one initiative. You wanna do it over and over again um, to get that high, I guess. So, um, <laughs> So that's when I decided to, you know, I, I always wanted to have a few other initiatives running. Okay. Um, and then as an offshoot of that, I was going to just say, I, I've been part of this small firm. I just switched to a new job, but it's another small firm. But being in these small firms, I, I experienced the business side of it too and admin and it's not just all design and all the marketing that happens and all the business relationships that happen and how it all comes together would you say that with build aware uh or not build aware design aware my apologies um that your employees have are able to touch those different aspects in certain ways yeah uh definitely so we're a really small firm um, and for now, we really aim to stay that way. Uh, so um, most of our, I think our driving force is our interns. So we have a lot of interns and, and of course they come in different cycles and they keep, we have different groups who keep changing. So the interns really get an inside view of how a company is run or how we run our firm. So, so they get to know how we interact with clients uh, they are part of, um, you know, lots of meetings with clients. They're part of different now, of course, Zoom meetings and things like that. And uh, if we meet government officials, we also take our interns along and they get to see the kind of conversations that happen uh, that I think that I always feel that the things that I would have loved to do when I was, was an intern or when I was just graduated, those are the things I like to, those are the uh, kind of um, situations that I like to create. And those are the kind of opportunities that I like to give to people who are joining my firm. So um, for example, we have this program called Studio to Site. We, when I graduated, when I was a student and later when I graduated, we, uh, or I hardly had any exposure to the site. 
And um, it was really uh, precursory kind of site visits and not uh, actual, you know, I would design, I would work really intensively on the design and then um, to have that implemented was somebody else's job, even though it was a small firm. So I wanted this kind of experience for students who are students and young architects. And so we created this program called Studio The Site where we take them through the entire process of a year long construction of uh, one of our buildings. Mm. So they get to see all of the stages of work. Uh, this and then, you know, other things like the way you run a firm. Those are things that I like to share with the, with the interns and, and keep it really open source. So I guess even people who are following our social media would, able to, would be able to see um, how we run things and how we do things behind the scenes. Very nice. How many years of experience did you have in the firm when you started uh, started the firm? Um, I, like I said, it was really um, not a particular time when I started the firm. So um, when I registered, it was 2016. So I had about nine years of experience then, or, or let's say nine years after I um, completed my undergrad. I completed my undergrad in 2007. And then I worked for a little while here and there, and then I did my master's. So um, completed my master's in 2011. And that's when I got the idea. So there, were, there was a lot of overlap. Um, and I think no matter how much experience you have, you always, or for me at least, I always felt like I don't have enough. And that's why I would have started much earlier if I had not had that feeling that, okay, I need more experience. I need to learn a little more. I need to work a little more under somebody before I start my own firm. No, you need to start now. Just start and then you learn on the job. Yeah. Well, I, I, I kind of just brought that up because I feel like most people have a lot more experience when they go to finally start their firm, if they ever get there. Uh, and so I just think it's really interesting, especially how you talked about how you uh, really just focused on how other startups in general are run. And it, it kind of makes me wonder um, if you're kind of starting a firm at, at a, uh, a young age or with less experience, are you bringing sort of a, a fresh view into how to run a firm? Um, I don't know. I just, I feel like a lot of times what ends up happening is somebody works for 20 years and then they go and start a firm. And then these same ways of running the firm are kind of embedded into their head already. Uh, so that when they go to start their own, um, it's sort of run in the same way as every other firm. And I, I don't know. I just, hearing you talk about it, it sounds like you kind of brought in a fresh, a fresh look into how to run things and how to be open and how to teach through what you're doing as well. Would you say there's any truth to that? I think it's, uh, I, I wouldn't say um, there's a formula or there's generally a way of doing things because I think it's different for everyone. One thing is that in India, it's really, it's easier to start early because um, we don't have as many regulations as in the West. So we are able to complete our, you know, as soon as you're out of school, you can be a licensed architect. You don't have mm. as many um, hours or years of internship that are required. You don't have as many, uh, you know, um, hurdles towards your license or you don't have to pass so many exams to become uh, a licensed architect. So that I think, for me, that was one of the main reasons for moving back to India to start my firm because I could do it right away uh, rather than having to work and gain a lot of experience. And I think when you, as you grow a little older, you have to, there are other responsibilities that you have um, financially that you have to kind of fulfill. And so it gets a little difficult to put yourself in this risky position of, uh, you know, this, this position where you, may or may not make it and I think when you're when you're doing it early on you're um, you're able to do that because you don't have as many, uh, as much to take care of so <laughs> I think being in India I think most of the architects in India start out really young uh, the ones who are who have their own firms so that's one it, it could be a positive or a negative thing but yeah that's generally how it is here interesting I had not considered that point. <laughs> yeah, and also I think the what I one more thing that I learned from um, from the startup uh, sort of culture around is the the minimum viable product. So you have your 
they put out, especially tech companies, they put out this app, which may have a lot of bugs. It may not work properly, but it's the minimum viable product. And then when they put it out, they see how people respond to it. And then they get, um, you know, user feedback and they get, um, they get all this data, which helps them improve the, improve the product. And so I feel that when you're starting anything, and that could be applied, applied to anything in any field, really. So when you're starting out, when you're starting a, an architecture firm, you could put it out as a minimum viable product. You could put out a design, which may not be yet constructed, but you you put, a, put out ideas and then um, later you might be able to develop on them at, further and then make them better and better. Mm. So it doesn't have to be perfect before you put, put something out into the world. So Aaron, what I'm hearing is that you and me should start a firm right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, can I, can there's we, no way I could start a firm right now. Can we wait one year till I can graduate? You already have yep. your, your bachelor's. Wait till. True. Wait till True. I get Let's my wait a year or two. Yeah. <laughs> you, guys have, you guys have the podcast. That, that is a startup too, which is really That's really true. Cool. Yeah, that's, that's very true. Excellent point. Um, okay. So then in conjunction with that, I wanted to ask, so you lead and are also part of the leadership for Design Aware, which we've talked about, Build Aware and Fractal Workshop. Um, so we were just wondering, how do you balance all of these and how interconnected are they? Uh, and I think I'll leave it at that. What's really great days is if you wanna start any sort of company or any sort of initiative, all you need is a laptop, and an internet connection and and then you start that's it that's that's the bare minimum that you need so this is uh, exactly how we you know um my team and i started builderware recently what's really crazy is that we started this just before the pandemic and you know it was possibly the worst time to start a company uh and then it became a really uncertain time with the lockdown and we, we uh, builderware is about construction so it's construction administration um, so we already had certain projects which we, we had designed and then they were getting into the construction stage and many of our clients wanted uh, a reliable team to be able to construct or build those, uh, those designs that we had designed. So uh, that's when you know, we decided to start BuildAware. Um, and it was a really uncertain time with the lockdown, uh, construction activity was halted and it's still pretty uncertain, but we started it and we kept it alive. Uh, through the lockdown, through 2020. Um, and the reason why we started this initiative is because one is that I'm a, I'm a control freak. I like to have, you know, really meticulous control over all aspects of the process of architecture, not just design, but also construction to make sure that execution is done as per the design. And a lot of times, you know, there are changes on site, there are issues on site, which you need to address. And we want, we want to be the ones to address them and resolve them and come up with better uh, solutions to any issues on site rather than um, say the contractor doing it. So that's one. And, and the second, um, you know, more importantly, this greater control over the process allows us to ensure that the built product that we deliver to our clients is of a high quality and something that we can stand behind and be proud of uh, and a space that will serve their needs in the best possible manner. So that's uh, that was our reasoning behind starting Builderware. Um, as for the fractals workshop, when I first moved to India, I, you know, hardly anyone was into design research or computational design or even digital fabrication. So at that time, I was asked to teach a workshop, a design workshop at an architecture school near Chennai, which is in South India. And I designed the fractals workshop specifically for them based on the teaching approaches of the design research lab. So this workshop involved parametric aggregation, which is based on generative rules, the way fractals grow in nature, um, because digital fabrication like laser cutting wasn't easily accessible at that time or uh, in, that, in their campus. Um, and as I had said earlier, we always have this thing about budget and about you know, material um, economy and these kind of things are major issues, uh, major themes in, in um, architecture school in India. So then I decided that we could use easily available, cheap, uh, lightweight, disposable materials as repetitive elements for these systems that we were designing. So for example, paper cups, 
Later, we used plastic straws, styrofoam bowls. Um, and then later, we also started to use natural material, which was locally available. So all of these, material, uh, these materials have a particular three-dimensionality in their geometry, which is already embedded in them. And that allows for manipulation of units to result in a global geometry, which is based on rules of growth, or we like to call it analog algorithms. Um, they're algorithms, but analog because computational design was not yet, you know, welcome in most schools in India at that time, as it is now. Now it's uh, it's kind of more encouraged, but at that time it, there was this aversion to it. This was back in 2011, uh, so 11-12, that's when I started the Fractals Workshop. And, uh, and that, the workshop is kind of um, at odds with, you know, practical architecture or um, buildable architecture. It's more of a design research, open-ended uh, experimental workshop, which, uh, which is more about learning how things come together, how you know, the connections between individual units um, and how an algorithm can dictate the larger uh, outcome of a design rather than um, you know, other external constraints. Hmm. So then, Along with that, can you explain how Fractal Workshop might, how, how that's applied to your design process and then maybe into construction? Yeah, um, I think um, the Fractal Workshop is kind of, uh, it, it runs parallel to the to Design Aware in that it's more of a, more of a design research and education initiative. And some of these uh, ideas sort of allow us to um, you know, they seep into the into the design process in uh, when we have practical commission projects uh, from clients in in design aware, and then uh, some of these ideas might might get applied. So design research really allows us to refute the idea of what I like to call the single solution syndrome. Um, so multiple approaches are simultaneously possible, and they're correct at the same time. There's always this environment of experimentation and open-ended exploration. So we, we also like to run our studio like an incubator where new ideas from various individuals are welcomed and they're given this platform to be investigated further and developed. So especially interns have the freedom to initiate any kind of design research or exploration that they like. And we call these passion projects um, and they're encouraged to devote a part of their time to these. So the Fractals Workshop also functions in, this, in the same way. It allows us to design and conduct form-finding research, uh, which is free of constraints without conforming to any particular site or you know, client, context, scale, material, uh, even the, the function, um, gravity, or even reality. So it's completely free of all of these constraints and you're, you're just uh, focusing on the design process and how, how it develops uh, or the design research. So, um, and I know that one of the really, uh, you know, rules of being a successful business is to select a niche for yourself and situate yourself. But we've always been anti-niche and anti-specialization, anti-discipline. So I believe you can be many different things. You don't necessarily have to choose one path or one area of focus. And uh, let's see how, where that takes us, this, this inclusive and multi-passionate approach. So that's, and, and so the design research kind of um, seeps into design aware uh, and back and forth. So they feed into each other. Okay. Aaron, any thoughts? Um, not sure. It's just all fascinating. I was kind of just no, it's, thinking. It's amazing. I was just kind of thinking about form and whatnot and what you said about how these explorations are not tied to anything. And that, I think, I feel like that's got to really push you, um, push you to really think through it because anytime that in the past I've been trying to design something or come up with a form, uh, I'm always basing it off of those contextual factors. And yeah. so then to have to try to come up with something completely free of that, I feel like that's really yeah. got to push you to, to think and to, yeah, I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think there both of these ways, or there are multiple ways of designing, and and um, definitely when you have a real project, and you definitely have to think about the, the context and the the you know 
uh, site and other inputs from the environment around. And then there is this other approach where it's kind of the design comes from within the system and you're mm -hmm. designing systems that are prototypical rather than site specific. So right, they're yeah. just different approaches and it's really interesting to go down each of these paths. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, so then looking into the future, how do you see uh, your design research influencing the industry as a whole? Because um, I was looking through your website uh, and you have a lot of publications, a lot of research behind you that you've done. And it's, it's fascinating. It's amazing. And what, I mean, what do you see happening in the future to continue this? I think we don't have a, a real roadmap as such. Yeah. So it's something that, and even, you know, wherever we are, it's not really been um, very meticulously planned, uh, similar to the design, the design process of, you know, the, the way the open-ended approach that we have, the same kind of approach I think we have in, um, in the way um, our studio works. It's kind of open-ended and then we take detours and, and take opportunities that come along. So we're just, I think mainly it's, um, we kind of need to focus on principles. So the principles that dictate uh, our firm and the principles that dictate our design processes, the kind of projects that we will be taking and not taking. Uh, so those are the things that will remain constant and everything else is kind of open to interpretation. So we're, we're open to um, taking a complete, um, you know, doing a complete 180 degree turn if we need to uh, for, you know, it depends on what, what um, new things come along because especially also with the, with the pandemic, this is something that we did not expect at all. And so we need, we're trying to become comfortable with uncertainty and that one way that kind of um, uh, manifested itself was during the pandemic and during the, the lockdown, the early days, when we had no idea what we were going to do next, uh, because construction activity was halted. Uh, of course, design was still happening, but a lot of the design projects, we didn't know where they were going to go, whether they were going to build, get built at all, because of the budget constraints that started to happen with, you know, with the uncertainty that everybody was going through. And what's really interesting is that the entire world together went through this uh, at the same time. Uh, so at that time, we started to make connections with people internationally. Uh, and, you know, we reached out to so many different uh, companies and, and we had so many different students. We started to have the, the fractals workshop online. So many students from all over the world were able to participate in the fractals workshop. And then we started to um, tie up with Facebook. Uh, we tied up with the Tourscape Academy in China. Um, we also tied up with the Boston Architectural College um, and so many other, you know, companies. And at the same time, uh, we designed a restaurant in London while we were sitting in Hyderabad during the pandemic. So uh, we had a lockdown. They had opened their lockdown just then, their first lockdown. And so over, um, over the webcam, we kind of, you know, um, we did a, I think it was a WhatsApp call, video call, and then we saw the site and we designed uh, sitting here. So I think wow. um, it was more about, even though all this technology was available to us, it was about people being comfortable enough to use it. And that's when, during the lockdowns when they were forced to use it. So that I think became a sort of opportunity for us to um, work with people all over the world rather than just in India or, or in places where we could physically visit. So I think it's always, um, you have new new things that, that come up, which you can't really foresee, and you just need to be resilient enough to be able to adapt and, and make the best of it. Love it. Absolutely. Um, Aaron, any thoughts on that? I don't think so. Okay. Just, again, fascinating stuff. It, yeah, it is. <laughs> I love this. So then my next question is going to be, I mean, there's so many ways to obviously bring a design to completion. Um, and there's big, small firms, medium firms, and then you have design research and there's all these things happening. Um, and you've spoken to it a little bit already within this discussion, but how 
do you more specifically work through the design and into realization? Um, yeah. How does that look? Yeah, I think uh, because like I said, we're anti-niche. Uh, so we're open to all kinds of projects and also being, um, you know, being a young firm or a, or a firm that is new still uh, when it comes to architecture, because you're, you know, it takes many, many years to get, uh, get established, right? So uh, we still think of us as a new firm. Um, so we like to say yes to, you know, all kinds of projects. Uh, so we've been able to work on a variety of projects that are very different from one another. And one example is the Hilltop School, which is a project that uh, I believe it, it stands uh, alone in its own category, because this is a project that's almost like a once in a lifetime sort of commission. It's a charity school for children from disadvantaged backgrounds uh, that's situated on a hilltop inside the fort, uh, inside the walls of the Golconda Fort, which is about 800 years old. Uh, and within the fort walls is a very tight urban residential context. And that's where the school is situated. Um, and so the project was really, from the very beginning, it was riddled with endless challenges. Um, and, and I really believe that constraints can give birth to creativity. So the site was really tight and highly contoured with the cliff running right through it, dividing it into two parts vertically. Um, and it was really impossible to design without an extensive analysis of the site and context, apart from site surveys and rock profiling. And we spent large amounts of time on the hilltop trying to understand the site from within and from uh, afar. And our aims were to preserve the in, uh, existing sheet rock. So this rock is more than 250 million years old. Um, so we wanted to preserve the rock on the site. We wanted to save the trees which were existing on site. Uh, and we also wanted to preserve this existing playground, which was uh, which had been created a long time ago in the, in the past, much before we were involved with this uh, project. Uh, so there was this retaining wall that was built on the upper level of the site, and it was filled with soil, resulting in this flat, higher ground level. Um, so it was really important for us to preserve this open space as a playground because it's a much-needed lung space. And it's an asset in this dense um, urban context, which is really rare uh, for most city schools. Uh, a lot of the city schools have uh, don't have playgrounds. They have to do it on their on the rooftop, or you know they have to block out a street for as a playground. So, because of this, um, recognizing the, the playground as an asset, we were forced to design the school on the side of the cliff rather than on the flat flat part of the site. So ultimately, the site is what dictated the form. Uh, the school would take. So the distribution of the space, the levels, the outer boundaries. So all of this was dictated completely and entirely by the site, which is very different from the other approach that I was talking about, which is the you know, open-ended design research. And then Aaron was uh, talking about how the site kind of uh, gives you a lot of inputs. So this was that kind of project where the site dictated everything. And so uh, another really interesting thing in this particular project, the Hilltop School, was that the design process was inclusive and participatory. We involved the teachers initially and we got a list of their requirements before we began to design. Uh, and even during construction, uh, even though we had we had done extensive site surveys, we discovered that the rock, uh, there was rock uh, being uncovered at unexpected places uh, during excavation. So we had to redesign on site and we had to take certain decisions on the spot um, we were sketching out changes directly on the rock uh, on site. Um, that's, that was because it was a charity school. Uh, there was this kind of ensemble team that was working on it. A lot of them were devoting their time pro bono. So um, we, we didn't have this process of getting drawings and then you know uh, having them approved and printing them out. So we did a lot of informal design and informal, even the structural design very informally happened and changes happened on the site, uh, drawing right onto, onto the site itself. Uh, so we had to uh, do this and then we were forced to, at that point, embrace the uncertainty and respond to unexpected challenges um, and, and develop this resilience. And also at some point we had to relinquish control over the design itself. So uh, when I was traveling, um, sometimes I had to coordinate with the construction crew over WhatsApp and video calls. Uh, 
so the library was also partly designed by the carpenter himself. So we gave him a set of parameters to follow, um, sizes of the shelves, you know, um, what the orientation of the, of the doors would be, the, the colors, uh, all of these were given to him. And then the carpenter responded uh, working within those constraints or those parameters. And then he responded with this design that, you know, we could have done something similar. Uh, it was it was kind of like a set of guidelines and then he followed them and he designed uh, the library. So parametric design doesn't just mean the use of computation or algorithms. It can sometimes mean the coming together of many minds and many hands to create something together that is unpredictable. So I think this is one project which was really quite different from others. Um, and probably it, it will remain uh, one of our, you know, uh, probably our defining projects. Absolutely. And I, I watched the video you had on Dazeem and you did a walkthrough and everything. And, and I mean, seriously, it's it's incredible. And I mean, after the show, we're going to post links so our, all our listeners can see this because it, it truly is incredible. And it's in, in, in a very complicated part of town, just from what you how you speak about it. And then even the walk up, like you, I think you were in a car and you were driving up and then you walked in and there's just so much going on. Um, people need to see that. And, and it's, and it's awesome. And did, weren't the students in school at, like during parts of the construction, like yes. they were, they were there. Yeah. This is a really, um, kind of really different and really informal kind of project. Uh, it wasn't dictated by, you know, milestones and things like that. So it was, um, it was built in a kind of ad hoc manner. Like I said, the, uh, the team was an ensemble team, uh, and also the construction happened incrementally as and when they raised funds. Um, so when the construction was going on, certain parts of the school were being occupied by the students. So the parts that were built, they were already in use, and then the students had access to the construction site while it was being constructed. Uh, so, and also the school used to be from um, from kindergarten to the fifth grade before. Uh, and then uh, these kids occupied the school and then they started to build more and more classrooms for each of these kids as they graduated to the next class. So that's how it, it got constructed. Uh, and for a very long time, we didn't have a proper roof over the school. So we have this, now we have a skylight that brings in uh, sunlight right into the center of the school. So before the skylight was constructed, the rain used to come right into the school and the kids mm. used to play in the rain inside their school, which is <laughs> really crazy. That's uh, awesome and, though. Yeah. And, and people enjoy the rain in India. They, they like yeah. the rain. Uh, we like the rain. So it's really, um, it was a really positive thing, not, not a negative thing. And also this is one of the only schools probably um, where kids are allowed to write on the walls. Mm. So they're allowed to, you know, sketch and write with chalk. And sometimes the teachers, uh, you know, draw on the walls and they teach them directly. And sometimes they learn outdoors as well under the trees. So this is a different kind of school. Wow. So the architecture becomes personal at that point um, yeah. in many, many ways. That's all. I, I love to hear that. Um, Sounds like a, a really fun school to learn at. Yeah. <laughs> you guys should visit sometime. <laughs> oh, I would love <laughs> to. Please. Yeah. If and when I get a chance to visit India, I will absolutely, absolutely stop by. We're gonna do we're Great. gonna do a podcast trip. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Record episodes all around the world. That would be so fun. Yes. Um, well, cool. Uh, that's really what I had. Um, but I wanted to extend the offer to you to if you need if you wanted to talk about anything else um, that our listeners would need to hear. Uh, maybe even advice for students that are in school right now, young professionals, because that's our main target and audience. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think if you're thinking of starting a firm, like I said earlier, um, go for it. it. It's okay if it fails. It's okay if you have to, you know, shut it down and start another one again. I mean, some a, a lot of successful architects have done that as well. So I think... Um, this is one thing that I would really encourage everyone to do because um, only when you kind of go go out on your own, that's when one you have more control over your what your um, design process will be like and what the way things will work. 
And the second thing is that not all firms uh, may allow you to learn about all aspects of running a firm. So that is something that you would need to do on your own when, when you do it. That's you learn um, while doing it. And I think this whole thing about imposter syndrome, which everybody um, has a little bit of, that you, you think you're not ready to do something or you think you're not um, you know, experienced enough. I think that is something that it's okay. It's okay not to be ready. It's okay not to be experienced enough. Um, so it's not the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Aaron, any last questions or thoughts from you? Um, not really. Okay. This has been a, a really amazing conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day. I know, I know you're quite busy. So, thank you, thank you for having me on the podcast. Really, it was a really interesting conversation with you guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, as a last thought, what I know you sent me some links um, to, that I'm going to share with our audience and on Instagram. Um, is there anything or what verbally can you say on the show that you want people looking at um, that they should see from you at least? Yeah, we're, we're gonna have uh, quite a few online fractals workshops coming up. So if anybody's interested in that, they can just join online. So okay. they can follow fractals workshop on Instagram and then they'll be able to see what's going on. And also we do a lot of site live site updates uh, with, on our design aware um, handle on Instagram. So they'll be able to see that as well. Cool. And is the fractal, is that free, is that a free program that you run? Uh, no, it's a paid one. Paid one. Okay, yeah. cool. Well then, yeah. yes, all our cool. listeners need to go check it out. Absolutely. Go check it out. We'll have links to all of that in our uh, social media posts that we'll put out there as well. Yeah. So. Right. All Great. Right. Well, I think that'll be the conclusion of this discussion. Uh, thank you. Seriously, thank you so much. Stay tuned and go like, rate, and subscribe to help us make the show better. And you can also find us on Instagram at allnighterpod and email us at allnighterpod at gmail.com with any questions or comments. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, everyone.